All right, good morning. It is my great joy to welcome you today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm the lead pastor here at City Reach LA. I am I'm eager to preach today. I've been, I'm very excited about this message today. Uh, before we jump in, I wanted to announce um, Wednesday the 14th this year, Valentine's Day, in fact, is Ash Wednesday. And Ash Wednesday begins Lent. Uh, which is, if you're unaware, Lent is an observance in the Christian liturgical calendar, and it remembers Jesus' 40 days of prayer and fasting in the, desert, in the desert, where he endured temptation from the devil, and he was prepping and getting his heart and his body and his mind ready for ministry. Um, Lent lasts 40 days, which, interestingly, I even looked it up this week. You know, it's like 40 days of fasting and prayer, but Lent is actually 46 days long, if you did not know that, because they don't count Sundays. It's really interesting. I've never actually read that part. But it leads, it starts Ash Wednesday, it leads up to Good Friday. And to kind of condense it into a succinct idea, Lent is a season for self-examination, for repentance, for prayer, for, for fasting, for seeking God in order to draw close to him. And for Lent this year, I want to invite our church to unite in an all-church fast during Lent, um, to seek God together as a community of faith, to, grow, to draw close to God together. And I want to encourage you, and I want to challenge you to take some time over the next week or two, sit down with God and ask him for wisdom in something that you can fast from. Um, that during Lent, you would take some time each day and that you would prayerfully seek God to know him to give you some ideas um, what you could do. You could fast from a specific type of food. You could fast from a meal a day. Um, sugar, caffeine, social media, screen time, non-essential shopping, music, or something else that may be distracting you from God. As I've prayed about it personally, I'm going to be fasting from coffee during Lent. I was like, God, please no. <laughs> <laughs> but I prayed about it, and I'm like, I, I really felt like God was said, I need you to lead the front. I want you to sacrifice something. So I'm not going to be on my Instagram account, Strawberry Coffee. I'm not going to make coffee. I'm not going to drink coffee because I want to seek God, and I want to know God, and I want to be known by God so that he can use us powerfully for good and for light in our city. So I want to ask you to join me. I want to invite you to join me and us. Again, we're going to start Ash Wednesday the 14th. If you have questions, come talk to me about it. I'd love to, to have a conversation about it. But um, I'm looking forward to how God's going to use us um, and move in our hearts as a community of faith. Yes? All right. We're in February. Wow, that month went fast, right? Gosh. We had a baby. Shiloh's doing awesome, by the way. Um, he's gassy. The kid has gas, but um, he's good. He's a good kid. <laughs> he's a good kid. We're, we're sleepless a little bit, but we're, we're doing all right. Amanda's at home right now with him. Um, to start today, I want to I recap a little from the last two weeks. The last two weeks were Vision Sundays for us. And leading into the new year, I prayed long and I prayed hard. God, what do you want us to be about? We've experienced a lot of transition, right? The Kolar's leaving to go to Nashville. Um, we're part of City Reach now. We've experienced a lot of transition, actually, this last year. Um, we used to be Clarity, now we're City Reach. Now we have, you know, Man and I are lead pastors. I've been praying, God, what, what do you want us to be and to be about? Who are we to be and to be about? And this is the vision that he put on my heart, that we would be a church that passionately adores God, that lives authentically and vulnerably together, and makes tangible impacts in our city. 
two weeks ago, I walked through that. Um, and to come at vision from another angle, this is, this is what success looks like for us. So this is what we're shooting for five to ten years from now. And our vision framework is how we plan on getting here. This is our vision framework. Nick drew that up. Great job, Nick. You're awesome at what you do. Um, this is up on our, um, on our whiteboard. Our staff sees this every week. I look at this every single week. And I th so this is how this works. Our mission is the centerpiece to know Jesus and make him known. This is why we exist as a church, to know Jesus personally and communally and to make him known beyond us. The next ring are our core values, which this month we're doing a series on our core values, which is going to be fun. And then, sorry, go back. Thanks. And then the outside ring is our, is our core practices. This is how we do what we do. Our main core practices are community groups, our Sunday gatherings, and our serving teams, which is the dream team. Anybody on a serving team is on the dream team. And I think this is important that you hear this. The goal of our church is not to grow our church. I'll let that sink in for a second. The goal of our church is not to grow our church. A larger community is not the reason we exist as a church. I don't care how many butts are in these seats on Sunday mornings. I don't care how many people tune in on Facebook Live. If we're not pursuing God individually and together for our city, we exist to be and to become a thriving community that adores God for the good of our city. That's why we're here. We're about growing people. We like to say that in our staff. We're about growing people. We're about enriching LA because God loves LA. Not just making a large religious club with more members. That's not what we're about. So over the next four weeks, I'm going to be working through our core values. We have four guiding cultural principles that, that define what we believe in and how we will behave. They're, these, they're deep beliefs that fuel our efforts in the direction of our vision and our mission. And obviously, as a church, we, we value many things, but we have four values that we consider central here. These are our core values. The way of Jesus, come as you are, church's family, and local and global mission. So I'm working through these this month. It's going to be a fun series just to hit each one of these. So today, I'm preaching a message entitled, The Way of Jesus. Um, and I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer before we jump into this. God, thank you. Thank you that you're present to us today. Thank you for your grace and your love for us today. Thank you that you've called us cherished sons and daughters that have been adopted into your family. So today, we open our hearts and we receive from you. We, we ask for open ears and open eyes and discerning hearts to know what you're doing in our hearts and in the room. And give us courage to respond to what you're doing. I pray this in your name. Amen. If you read through the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles, you see that Jesus leaves heaven and he empties himself. He becomes man he serves humanity. He dies for humanity. He resurrects from the dead for humanity and for all his creation, in fact. And then he has this awesome exit. He gathers his followers up and he, he gives some instruction to them. And then, and then he ascends into heaven. It's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty interesting picture as you read it. So his disciples are, are, are talking with him and Jesus gives some final instruction. And then Jesus just starts going up into the clouds. And they're left there with their mouths open, looking at the clouds, and two angels show up, and they're basically like, guys, go. <laughs> go do what he said. And since that day, since the day Jesus physically left our world, the temptation presented to every Christian is to remake Jesus into a God who will serve our preferences. 
that we would remake Jesus. We're tempted to remake Jesus into one who's going to justify our preferences. And we'll even go as far as finding scripture and using scripture to back it up. So if I'm an angry person, my favorite Jesus in scripture is the one who flips tables in the temple. Because it gives me permission to be an angry person, right? If I'm a rule breaker, I love watching Jesus heal on the Sabbath just to piss off the Pharisees. That makes me so happy, and it gives me permission to push back against authority. If I enjoy devaluing people, I love watching Jesus call the Pharisees hypocrites and whitewashed tombs and broad of vipers because it gives me permission to call people names, to devalue their personhood. I will go out of my way to protect a version of Christ who confirms my tendencies and my prejudices. You following? The church is proficient at this. In 17th century France, Blaise Pascal wrote, God made man in his image, and then man returned the compliment. In every age and culture since the time of Jesus, we have tended towards shaping Jesus to our own image, shaping him in light of our needs in order, <laughs> in order to cope with the stress of encountering an, an all-powerful holy God. <laughs> we want to shape him to meet our needs. But who was Jesus? What was Jesus actually about? You know, as, at a fundamental level, Jesus was a wisdom teacher. And wisdom in his time was principally concerned with the transformation of the whole being. It wasn't just about mere head knowledge. It was about transformation of the soul. Jesus seemingly shows up out of nowhere and he comes preaching to these people and teaching a message that was radical in its own time, but it, it remains equally radical today. And because his teachings were so counter to our selfish interests, when we're not careful, the global church drifts really far, actually, from following Jesus. One can argue that there has never been a time in Christian history when the name of Jesus has so frequently been mentioned, yet the content of his life and teaching so frequently ignored. It's the seduction of counterfeit discipleship. False discipleship. We've made it too easy to be a Christian. I regularly read and hear a Christian message that paints Jesus' standard for discipleship as inadequate for today. That Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. That he was talking to a world 2,000 years ago. His, his standard of life doesn't match for today's world. So the new standard is correct doctrine, and it's coupled with the way we interpret Scripture. But Jesus doesn't instruct his followers to merely change how they think. He doesn't merely pass a bunch of information to them about God. He invites them into absolute transformation, to surrender their entire lives to his transformative power at work in their lives. And while the idea of risking everything on the gospel, while it sounds appealing, maybe even a little romantic, it's equally terrifying. We want to stay close enough to the fire to keep warm, but we're hesitant to dive in because we know we're going to come out burnt, <laughs> irreversibly transformed. You see, Jesus says, I am the way to God. I am the way to accessing eternal life, to knowing God. Jesus is the way, and Jesus had a way. 
So when we talk about the way of Jesus being a core value for us, we're saying we commit to the person of Jesus and to where his life leads and to where his way of life leads. You see, many Christians want it. They want access to eternal life without taking the path that leads to eternal life. The way of Jesus leads us somewhere, but many want to avoid the destination. So what's Jesus's way? Where does his way lead us? We find the answer in Matthew 16. So if you brought your Bible or your smartphone, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. There's small Bibles on the tables scattered throughout the room here. I'll have the text up on the screen as well. Matthew chapter 16. If you amazingly have the same Bible that I do, I'm on page 979 if you want to join me. We're going to start in verse 21. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem And suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed. And on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he will reward each person according to what they've done. Let's, let's unpack this a little bit. So Jesus tells his followers that they need to go to Jerusalem because he's going to suffer many things. He has to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, even further that they're going to kill him. Now, this would have utterly stunned his disciples. Jesus is the Messiah. They left their families. They left their trades. They left their homes They left everything they knew to follow him because he's the Messiah. The last thing they expected of the Messiah was to go to Jerusalem and get murdered. You know, I keep finding that Jesus is very skilled at disappointing our expectations for him. Anybody else experience that? (laughs) Jesus says he's going to suffer at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. These three groups, elders, chief priests, and the scribes, They made up the Sanhedrin, which means Jesus is going to be taken to Israel's highest court and he's going to be officially executed. The disciples are shocked, and they're probably so shocked by saying he's going to get murdered by them in Jerusalem that they they miss or they forget or they just move quickly past the whole point where he's going to resurrect from the dead. (laughs) They just focus in on the getting murdered part. So classic Peter jumps in, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. The text says that that Peter began to rebuke him. So he's not even fully into his rebuke yet. And Jesus jumps in. And he cuts him off. And note here, this is not merely Jesus informing his friend, hey, Peter, you're a little off here. Jesus interprets this as a message from Satan. 
And it's a message that's intended to discourage him from accomplishing what he's intended to do. And he's not going to allow it. So he exclaims, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. You don't have in mind the things of God right now. You have mere human concerns guiding your mouth. You know, one way to interpret this was that Jesus is putting Peter in his place. Peter, your rightful place is behind me, not in front of me. Your job is to follow my lead, not to lead me in the way that I'm supposed to go. So Peter, this is, this is really fascinating. Peter fell into a satanic way of thinking. And this isn't saying that he abandoned God and, and was claiming religion and rights and, and connection and communion with, with, with Satan. He's allowing worldly concerns rather than God's intentions to dictate his decisions. He fell into a satanic way of thinking. The lesson to be learned here is that a sincere heart combined with worldly thinking can lead you to disaster. Good intentions aren't enough. So Jesus looks to the rest of his disciples now, because Peter took him aside. Hey, Jesus, let's, let's have a side, sidebar, right? <laughs> Jesus confronts him pretty hard. He rebukes him and was like, hey, rest, re- the rest of you guys, I want you guys to know here are my expectations. I know you have expectations for me. I want to tell you my expectations for you. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself You must take up your cross and follow me. You know, Christians view the cross as this cherished symbol. Atonement, forgiveness, unending grace, abiding love. We've done a pretty good job at sanitizing and ritualizing the cross. But in first century Palestine, the cross represented torture. It was an unrelenting instrument of death. It had no other purpose. It wasn't about religious ceremony. It wasn't about tradition. It wasn't about spiritual feelings or jewelry or hand motion to help me hit a home run or get a, get a touchdown right now. The cross was the most painful and humiliating means of murdering a criminal. And on the way, on the way to their death, The Romans forced the convicted criminals to carry their own crosses to the execution site. Bearing a cross meant carrying my execution device while getting ridiculed all the way there. So when Jesus calls his followers to deny themselves, to take up their crosses and follow him, he's asking them to be willing to die. Physically. Spiritually. For his sake. It's a call to absolute surrender. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. These express the same idea. It's a disowning of self-promotion. It's not just occasionally giving up things or activities for a good cause. It's a total relinquishing of your plans, your attentions, your will. When Jesus calls his followers to deny themselves, he meant abandon your lives to God, to pledge a life of obedience to him. You see, human nature wants to indulge self. Not deny self. It longs for immediate gratification. This fulfillment of the sensual and the carnal desires of our flesh. But Jesus asks them, take up your crosses. And that meant one thing. You are going to a certain death. And your only hope is resurrection power. Followers of Jesus are invited to the way of the cross. Because it's the only way that we will ever find 
life. I know it sounds backwards to say you'll never truly live until you first walk to your death with Jesus. That's how it works. We don't get resurrection without dying. It says almost as if Jesus is saying to his disciples, do you really think living so nearsighted is worth compromising your soul? Is eternity worth these momentary flashes in front of you? Because I'll tell you, it's not worth it. Living like there's no eternity, it's a foolish way to live. In fact, it's not really living. You want to truly live? You got to die. When you read through the Gospels, you notice Jesus draws crowds really easily. You know, he's, he's doing miracles, incredible teachings of wisdom, this confidence that's just like burning out of him. Then they called him the Messiah. He's to usher in the new kingdom. He's, he's going to free the Jews from this Roman tyranny. But then he explains, hey guys, I'm going to be given into their hands willfully and they're going to kill me. And quickly, his popularity starts diminishing. Many of his followers leave. Many reject him. They could not and they would not put to death their ideas for him, their plans, their desires in exchange for his. You know, if you're looking really close, in fact, Jesus appears to be dissuading his followers. <laughs> this is going to get ugly, guys. You're going to get persecuted for following me. You're going to get left out for following me. You're going to be disrespected for following me. But following me is going to free your soul. And if I'm honest, this is not the message I really hear from the American church today. Pockets, sure, but the American church is not the message I hear. Let's attract the biggest crowd we can get. Let's grow our church as big as we can. Let's make following Jesus as convenient as possible. While Jesus seems to paint it, come follow me. You'll face loss. Lots of it. You'll encounter pain. Lots of that too. And all because of me. So take up your cross and die. But in dying, you'll learn how to really live. The cross. The cross is the way of Jesus. Brendan Manning put it this way, the cross is the signature of Jesus. God is love, and the cross was and is the ultimate expression of God's love for us. You see, Jesus didn't die at the hands of thieves and rapists and muggers and thugs. He fell into the well-scrubbed hands of priests and lawyers. The religious elites, the professors, society's most respected individuals. The Jews were waiting for this Messiah, but in their minds, Jesus' shameful death on a cross proved to them that he wasn't the religious liberator that they awaited. The cross doesn't make sense in the world's eyes. Because obedience to Jesus is going to leave us weak and powerless in their eyes. When we commit to the way of Jesus, when we embrace the cross, even celebrate the cross, we no longer call upon our possessions or our privilege for security. A life of the cross is sublime madness in their eyes. But entering life through death, that's not a contradiction, it's a paradox. Dualistic minds have a hard time. Binary minds, it's either or minds, they have a hard time with paradox. But I keep finding that paradoxes are the soil for faith. That's where the real magic happens. 
The cross is what Jesus calls his followers to. Dying in order to live. The cross is Jesus' way. And the church is the church of Jesus only when it is stamped with his signature. There's no discipleship without the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, when Jesus calls someone, he bids them come and die. We're disciples only as long as we stand in the shadow of the cross. Only as long as we take up our crosses in imitation of his. And God asks each of us, not just collectively, he asks each of us to accept our own cross, our own wounds, our own limitations, our own personality defects, the damage that others have done to us from our conception until the present day. This is our cross. For me, it was the loss of my first marriage. I was getting fired from my first ministry position. The terror of abandonment, the humiliating feeling that I'm only needed if I'm useful to others. That I have to perform well in order to keep close those who matter to me. This is what Christ has asked me to accept and allow him to redeem it and then share it. For you, it may be the loss of a deeply treasured relationship. Maybe the struggle to achieve success in an antagonistic work environment a recent financial failure, or ongoing struggles with a rebellious kid, or unbearable loneliness, rejection from your father. All of this and more, Christ asks, he asks you to accept so he can redeem it and then share it. In his passion and death, Jesus has experienced my pain and your pain, and he made it his own pain. And what happens in this encounter is that we enter into something that has already happened. Our being unified and united with Jesus. Our union with Jesus. He takes unto himself our pain, our anxiety, our fears, our shame, our self-hatred, our discouragement. All of this is included in the cross. When Jesus looks up to heaven and says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? His friends scattered. His honor was shattered. His message was torn to shreds. He stood condemned as a criminal. Yet this was the moment of our redemption. Why? Because in his cry on the cross, he cried our cry. And when we allow ourselves to experience our pain, we can know that what we feel is Christ suffering in us and redeeming us. There's no way of healing from wounds that each of us carry except through the love of Jesus that forgives and forgives and forgives and keeps no score of wrongdoing. So first, the cross invites us to allow our pain to be redeemed by him, and then it invites us to put to death our parasitic way of living. The cross is how we approach all of life, not just Sunday mornings, not just communion. It calls us to die to our way of thinking about everything, our closest friends, our families, our reputations, money, food, possessions, our talents, our abilities, our experiences. Jesus calls his followers, lay it all on the cross, let it be executed so that they may birth true life. Are we willing that's the question. You know, in some places in the world, it actually means dying for following Jesus. Thankfully, for most of us, probably, 
our, our lives will never be on the line. But some have said it's easier to die for Jesus than it is to live for him. Laying down your hopes, your dreams, your passion, your sin, your compulsions, your way of life in exchange for his way. This is taking up your cross. You know, sometimes I, I like to think of what it would be like to have a conversation with somebody who walked with Jesus today. Somebody comes down from heaven. You're just like, talk, what was it about? What was it like? So today, if Mary Magdalene or John the Beloved or Mary of Bethany, if one of them came and visited you from heaven and you were to talk about life with Jesus, what following Jesus means, my guess is the conversation would be centered on Jesus nailed to wood. They would not want to be burdened with your progressive theology or your social justice accomplishments. They would probably have one question for you. Do you know the crucified one? Because if you don't know Jesus of the cross, you don't know Jesus. The way of Jesus is the cross. Now, I've read that first century church, that they practiced the discipline of the secret. What that means is they often avoided mentioning baptism or communion or the life and death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ in the presence of non-believers. Why? Isn't that counterproductive to sharing the gospel message? They did so because they, they understood the power of our actions. That the most persuasive witness was the way one lived, not the words one spoke. The discipline of the secret was implemented to protect the sacred name of Jesus, the crucified one. In contrast to today, the public claims of many Christians have destroyed their credibility. The words on their lips are contradicted by their lifestyles. The reason? The cross has been reduced to an icon. It's no longer the way. But this is how Jesus puts it. Jesus says, there's no genuine following me. There's no real Christianity where the sign of the cross is absent. The cross is how we follow Jesus. It is his way. And it calls us to constantly redefine and reaffirm our identity in him. It calls us to measure ourselves against him. Not to measure him against our church dogmas or our local heroes. Death to self is a, is a necessity in order to live for God. And the truth is, if our Christian journey does not form Jesus in us in such a way that we actually resemble him, our spirituality is probably bankrupt. And I can't help but believe if we actually lived a life of the cross in imitation of Christ's, dying, denying ourselves in the way of Jesus, our witness would be truly irresistible. Where those who don't know Jesus or his way would no longer look at Christians and say, look at those Christians, they're worse off than we are. But where we would constantly hear, look at those Christians, see how they love each other. See how they beautify everything they touch? What's their secret? How is that shift possible? The cross. The cross.
I want to invite Josh and Jackie back up as we go into a time of response and worship. I want to shoot straight with you. Like I've said, there's no following Jesus without taking up our crosses, without denying ourselves. But I want to acknowledge this. This is really hard work. It takes incredible resolve to pick up our cross daily and walk with it. Anybody agree? And if you're struggling with that tension of like, God, I actually want to pick up my cross, but it's really hard. My heart, my soul says I want to honor you and live for you, but dying sucks. Can I offer a little hope? Jesus struggled with it too. Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he gets betrayed, right before he gets murdered, it went like this. Father, I know the cross is the plan. I know all of this ministry and all this good stuff has been leading up to this moment, but can we do it another way? I don't want to die like this. Even Jesus struggled with the way of Jesus. But this is how he ended his prayer. Nevertheless, your will be done, Father. You need to know Jesus is not ignorant to the trial of a chosen death by cross. He sweat blood in the garden because he wrestled with it so strongly. He knows. Hashtag, the struggle is real. (laughs) He gets it. And he showed us exactly what it looks like to to want to avoid the cross yet deny himself, lay down his desires for what the Heavenly Father had in mind. He's not ignorant to the challenge, and he does not leave you without help. Jesus asks nothing from you without giving you the strength to perform it. Jesus will ask nothing of you and from you without offering the strength to perform that. He's more powerfully present in you and with you than you could possibly imagine, and he asks you to follow him with everything you've got. Today, Jesus invites you to his way, the way of the cross. So Jesus, we give you our hearts in this moment as best we can. This is so hard. It takes so much courage, God. But we offer this to you in this moment. I know we don't even have an hour from now. We've got this moment with you. So for this moment, we open our souls and we say they're yours. We pick up our crosses in this moment. We deny all of our desires, all of our will, and we lay before you and say, your will be done. And we ask for more faith. We ask for more courage. We ask for more strength and that our lives would honor you. We ask this in faith, Jesus.